Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. Mario and Jane grew up in Indiana, went to college, got married, and had a family. Mario was a lawyer and later a judge. What is exceptional about their story is that both Mario and Jane were blind. The new book, The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parents' Story, is part biography, part memoir, written by Mario and Jane's daughter, Mary Harper. I recently talked with her about the book me over 10 years to actually write the book because I could not figure out how to tell this huge story. Um, I could have written one book just about my father, who was pretty incredible to be completely mm-hmm. blind at age four and then go on to become a, a lawyer and judge. Or I could have written one book about my mother, who was blinded uh, as a child also and um, went on to marry my dad and, you know, raise four children and run a household by herself. Uh, or I could have written a book about just their relationship or what it was like to grow up with blind parents. So it was really, really hard to figure out how do I tell that. And you have asked a good question. I think I coined a new word. It's like biomoir. It's a uh, combination bi- <laughs> biology, biology, biography, and uh, a little bit of memoir. Because I started out writing a memoir, and then I realized, yeah, my story is not near as interesting as my parents' story. And yes, people always ask me what it's like to grow up with blind parents, but what they're really interested in is how did my parents do that? How did they manage? What was their story about? So that's why I concentrated most of the book on, on them. And um, mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> sure. Well, just even just looking at it and just reading the galleys, to me, this immediately sounds like, well, this is a Midwestern story, and it's it is a Midwestern story since they they were they were here in in in, in Indiana, and, and they both went to to the Indiana School for the uh, for the Blind. But just the 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 nature and the essence of your parents remind me of a very typical um, Midwestern upbringing and 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 life as I've lived in the Midwest of my my entire life. Um, how do you? Gosh, I mean, I, to to ask the question everybody asks, how in the heck did, did they they do that? I just it just amazes me how yeah. normal, at least from the outside looking in, your parents' lives were. Right. You know, they were both incredibly intelligent and very creative. And the stuff my mom taught herself how to run a household, how to change a diaper. No one ever taught her how to change a diaper. She figured that out on her own. And that was back in the days when they had cloth diapers. And she washed them all in a ringer washing machine and hanging them up to dry. When I became a parent, I was like, how did she do this? Um, So I guess to start at the very beginning, which is what I did with the book, Mm -hmm. I think it's important to know their background. Uh, in that you're talking about Midwestern upbringing, my mother was absolutely 100% Wabash County farm girl in Indiana. <laughs> her uh, parents were farmers, sisters. Um, she loved being on the farm. She would not let things stop her, even when she couldn't see very much. She really wanted to ride the horse. And she rode with her sister in the back if she could get away with it, because she wanted to drive the horse, as she put it. So. Uh, and, and she did not let anything stop her. She wanted. She loved to roller skate. Um, she would have ridden a bicycle if her father would have let her, but no, that was too dangerous. But but a horse apparently with four feet was better balanced, and so it was okay for her as a horse. I'm like, okay. So there's some stories in the book about um, her growing up years uh, and how frustrating it was for her as she got to be school age. 
she went to school in a teeny tiny town called Lincolnville. And uh, the teachers there did not know what to do with her. They were not trained in how to help a blind child. And uh, the first one she had, she was so excited to go to school. She wanted to learn to read so badly. And uh, the teacher basically stuck her in the back row and said, here, you can't read a book, so you just sit here and look at pictures if you can see them. And, and let her be. I mean, just the cruel stuff that they did to her. Um, and as her sight got worse and worse and worse, um, she would come home with headaches, uh, severe headaches. And by the time she was in third grade, she was just coming home crying every day. It was just a miserable life for her because kids would tease her and she couldn't see the board, even if she was put in the front row one year. That helped some. But she, it got so she couldn't see print at all. So um, her father somehow one day went to the bank in Wabash and somebody told him about the Indiana School for the Blind. This was back in uh, 1923. Mm-hmm. So obviously no internet. And you know how do you know about places like that? You, unless you happen to maybe read about it in the newspaper or something. But um, anyway, he was lucky to find that out and she got very excited because here's a school that's just for kids like herself. Um, so she went down there when she was eight um and uh, back then that they had to spend weekends there so she at age eight left home uh in september and didn't get to see her parents till november thanksgiving i can't imagine so that's part of her experience and my dad's experience was much different because he was uh one of two children his older brother became a mentor for him when his mother and father were both immigrants from Italy, hence the last name Pironi. And um, my grandmother could not give up the idea of a miracle. They were devout Catholics. And in contrast to my mother's doctors, my mother's doctors said, don't take her, don't waste your money taking her to lots of doctors because it won't help her and she will go blind. And you might as well just get used to that idea. But my grandmother being the... Uh, good Catholic she was, really, really wanted a miracle and, and just wouldn't let go. So my poor dad went through surgeries and eye doctor after eye doctor and uh, painful eye drops and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. And of course, none of that helped. In fact, she even once World War One was over, they took a boat over to Italy and she went around praying at the various shrines for the Virgin Mary and then took them to a faith healer up in the mountains. And my dad was like, all right, I'll go along with it. But he was happy as he was. He uh, he, he was playing. He, uh, he didn't expect a miracle. And he, he wasn't surprised when he wasn't healed. But, uh, you know, so it's interesting that two kinds of cultures were, were very different. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and when dad completely lost his sight, which I will not uh, tell you right now, you have to read the book. Frankly, I did not know that story of how he actually lost completely his sight until he was in his early 90s. And not long before he died, he told me this story. And I was like, oh, my God, when you're four years old and you have so much pain in your eye, the pressure that glaucoma, they were both born with glaucoma, the pressure that was caused by the glaucoma literally caused his eye to burst. And I just like, oh, my, I can't imagine his childhood. But then... You know, he said, actually, there's no no more pain with that. So he was happy going around. His brother took him everywhere. They um, had lots of stories about my dad. When when my uncle was 15, bought a jalopy. And the insurance for the car cost more than the jalopy. I think the jalopy was like $15. <laughs> <laughs> the insurance was 20 which is what his father absolutely insisted he had. 
but he let my my brother drive, let my father drive. So his brother would stand in the back and tell him uh, how to which way to turn. And I won't give all that away yet, but uh, it's it's pretty funny. Uh, the how they would just go puttering around, and uh, my dad loved to drive. He thought that was pretty fun. <laughs> no, we couldn't see a thing. It, it never ceases to amaze me. We we run a we run a, a reading service for the blind and visually impaired here at the university, and and uh, meeting some of the folks that, that that utilize the service, I'm I'm I never cease to be amazed by by some of their stories and the way they've overcome. And 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 uh, one gentleman in particular that up until he was in his early seventies still rode his three wheeled bicycle up and <laughs> up and down the road, and he did it simply by by hearing listening he knew exactly where he was going and he just rode it up and down the up and down the road every, almost every day so it just it, it ceases to amaze me yeah. you, you talked about how how your your mother was able to uh, adapt and, and and come up with these ways of running the house but I, i'm i'm sure your father also had to have had to come up with ways to he had to navigate a, i mean especially when he became a judge and was running a, a courtroom i'm assuming there's had to be some ways he had to Oh, that he learned over time to to uh, adapt as well. Well, they they were given tools at um, the Indiana School for the Blind, and uh, they learned not only how to take notes in Braille, of course, how to read Braille, but um, to take notes in Braille, how to use a Braille typewriter, and how to type on a print typewriter. So that's how um, my dad would type, and my mom too. She went to college with my dad for a couple of years. Um, and they type their papers on um, a typewriter, a regular print typewriter. Um, my mom never really had much of a use for a Braille typewriter, but my dad did. He took a lot of notes that way. I can still hear it going clink, 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 clink. And, um, so, yeah. And, of course, when they went to school, uh, there was no computers, no cassette tape, nobody uh, to listen to other than in person. You couldn't just get a talking book or whatever or listen to a radio because really radio was new and they didn't have anything much for blind people on that. So uh, for his textbooks, uh, their textbooks, they had to get readers. And luckily mm-hmm. the state paid for readers to come to the rooms and read the textbooks. So that meant my dad, and especially in law school up at Notre Dame, he needed to not only listen to the person reading, who may or may not be a good reader, uh, take the notes. And then memorize them all and, and not be able to go back to refer to the text again. He had only had to remember it. His memory was unbelievable. Um, so it, that's one thing that he did um, to get through the school. And uh, once he was actually practicing law, he was very happy because he could uh, hire a secretary. And a secretary did the reading. And he could get anything read whenever he wanted rather than having to wait until – 4.30 when a reader could show up at his room and read to him. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they had to be patient. They had to be very um, creative in how they came up with solutions. Um, in school, at the, the School for the Blind, my mother was taught how to cook. And um, mm-hmm. she, she was happy with that. But she got, went home and her mother said, nope, stay out of my kitchen. It's too dangerous for you. You might hurt yourself. So absolutely, my mother said that, I can cook at school and I know what I can do. And she said, nope, I don't care. You don't get to do anything because you're blind. And mm-hmm. that just drove her nuts, of course. So once she finally was able to get married to my father, uh, she was ecstatic and uh, taught herself how to cook. Um, she read Braille recipe books. 
and she just she just did it because that's what you do when you have to do it. Um, but see, even there's so many layers to the story too because. Uh, the school for the blind was very strictly segregated in terms of boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Boys were on one side of the room, girls on the other. They had separate dining rooms. They had separate playgrounds. They were absolutely not supposed to mingle at all. And in fourth grade, when my mom joined my dad's class, she had to recite a poem. And um, she was very nervous about having to do that. But my dad heard her uh, recite this poem and remembered the words. So he it was in his, I mean, until his dying day, basically. Mm. He, hearing it one time, he listened to it in his mind over and over. He loved the sound of her voice, hence the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then for them to uh, pursue any kind of relationship uh, in high school, and remember, they were older. They were 20 when, by the time they graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was, they, they wanted to, you know, be together and, and communicate, and they came up with some very creative ways to um, communicate without getting caught. <laughs> the other part of the story was that well, my dad really, really wanted to marry her. And my mom was very firm and said, absolutely, I will not marry you until you can prove to me that you can earn a living. Because I'm not going to live on welfare. I do not want to be dependent on anyone else. And so dad had that big uh, push to get through college and grad school and and pass the bar and, and earn money. And mm-hmm. all along, you know, he was worried about failing. What if he failed? Then he wouldn't have a life. So that was a lot of pressure. Yeah, I can imagine. There, um, there's a wonderful photograph of your parents on the, on the cover of, of the book. Um, I say, how, how did you go about assembling? Obviously, obviously you lived it. So, you, I mean, you grew up with them around them, but how did you begin to do your research and putting, putting this book to, together? <laughs> I had a lot of resources, and that made the book a lot easier. Um, you mentioned about the picture. I love the picture because my dad has this big smile on his face. Mm-hmm. I know that's um, his first thing. I dog Carla, and it's taken at the, my mother's farmhouse or the one she grew up in uh, back in the farm. And I am almost positive they are just back from their honeymoon because they look so happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm almost certain that's one reason why I love that picture. I said, oh, that's the cover right there. But the other thing they did, they loved to talk. And later on, you know, in the 60s and 70s, when cassette recorders came out and made it much mm-hmm. easier to make recordings at home. So they would sit down and start telling stories uh, about their childhood or their uh, lives. And so I, I found those and I uh, transcribed them and so I could refer to them more easily and um, that was the basis for a lot of the ways that I could actually quote them because that was what they said. Um, the other thing I did was back uh, when they were living in North Carolina and I was back there for a visit on um, when they loved to sit around the table and chat after dinner. So this was after a Christmas meal. So they're talking and the subject got around to their childhood and I just thought, I've got to get this on tape. So back then, I think it was like 1998 or something. I grabbed my old heavy VCR camera, you know, the video camera, <laughs> yes. and I just sat there at the table and I just didn't say a word and just asked some questions and heard these wonderful stories. And then I thought, this has been really fun. Next night, it happens again. And then I really, oh, I have a dilemma. Should I tell them? that I'm videotaping them and risk getting a different response or should I just, you know, 
be quiet and not tell them. Um, and then, of course, my guilty conscience wore, uh, went out, and uh, I said, oh, well, I am recording this. Oh, well, then my dad sits up, and he straightens his shoulders, <laughs> and it gets into what I call his judge's voice. I was going to say. <laughs> and he just starts saying, well, now, when I was eight years old, I'm like, oh, crap, I shouldn't have told him, because it became very stilted. Uh, but it was still fun. Uh, I transcribed those tapes as well. Um, then the other fun thing I did, and I'm not a paid spokesman for newspapers.com, but I tell you, that's one of my favorite websites. So I went in there and I put my dad's name. Oh, my goodness. Over a thousand uh, times he popped up in all kinds of newspaper articles. Everything from Mr. Peroni and his dog, Carla, what is this voice got through 1291 uh, at whatever church. And I'm like, Nothing was too small to put in the newspaper. Uh, the dog barked at something. Oh, let's put that in the newspaper. <laughs> it, was, it was just funny to read. Uh, then there's other stories about um, my dad was city court judge. And he would put people in jail for you know various offenses. And um, there's more stories in the book about how he did that. How did a blind mm-hmm. person know what was going on? But uh, it made it in the newspaper, everything he said or did. So that was part of my problem growing up is everybody knew who we were. And you had to be on our best behavior the whole time in public, especially, because that was underlying one of my mother's biggest fears when we were young children, is that she had to prove to everybody that she was a fit mother. Mm-hmm. Um, most people didn't know that a blind person, first of all, blind people shouldn't get married. Second of all, they shouldn't have children. How in the world can they possibly raise children? So everything she did was watched um, and judged. And uh, her biggest fear was that someone would report her to the Children's Protective Services and we'd be taken away. So we had to be perfect out in public and uh, well-dressed and clean. Clean was a big thing for her. Um, She was always, uh, before she would go out, I can remember, she'd say, well, Mary, do I have any spots on me? And I'd say, no, Mom. I'd look at her and say, you look fine. And she said, you know, like, because that would be highly embarrassing to her if she went sure. out with a spot on her chest, you know? Um, and the yeah. same way with my dad, he'd come back from uh, lunch at work and ask the secretary, do I have any soup spots on my tie? Uh, it's just stuff that you don't think about that mm-hmm. becomes very important to people uh, sure. that can't see. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you if growing up, you, if you were able to get away with the typical teenager things, or if mom and dad always knew that something was, was up, even though they couldn't uh, see it, they could still, well, <laughs> those now, six uh, senses. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I was, I don't know, seven or eight, maybe six or seven, and I was hungry. It was getting towards dinner time, and mom was cooking, and she loved to cook uh, with an electric skillet, and I could hear meat popping over there and making noise, and so I thought, aha. I can climb up real quiet on the countertop and grab a cookie and she won't know it. So I go in there very quietly and she's working away and not paying attention to me. And I reach up there and grab a cookie. And then she says, Mary, what are you doing? Um, nothing. Uh, well, well, yeah, what's in your mouth? I said, nothing, mom. <laughs> she knew I had a cookie in my mouth. <laughs> she was not happy with me for doing that. Um, <laughs> You know, so yes, she she would always know if we were too quiet, she'd come and check on us and see what we were doing. And everything in the house was very organized. Everything mm-hmm. had a place. Everything had to go back in its place. Uh, when we were real little, um, I didn't get to play crayons unless I had an older sibling watching me because she was afraid, of course, we'd bark on the walls or do something stupid, mm. you know, like that. Um, 
the other biggest rule was never, ever, ever leave anything on the floor, like a toy or a mm. book or whatever on the floor, because they might trip on it. And uh, so we were always careful about that. We could play on the floor, and many times I'd be sitting there playing on the floor with a doll or whatever, and Mom would come in the room, and I'd say, hi, Mom, I'm over here by the coffee table. And she'd say, okay, and she'd walk right around, and no problem. But if I'd left that on the floor and she'd trip, we'd be in trouble then. <laughs> and, and rightfully so. So, I mean, just by having things organized, and uh, I was the youngest of four, so my older sister was 10 years older, and as she said, Mary, we grew up in two different families. She was had certain expectations on her, being the oldest, uh, and then I got away with a whole lot because I was the youngest, and by yeah. then, mom and dad didn't care quite as much <laughs> as they would have the oldest. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. So, and I think in general, we were pretty darn good kids. I mean, we, we were obedient. We didn't want it. I sure didn't. I felt really bad one time. Mom was chasing me around the table trying to catch me. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm five years old and my blind mother is chasing me. No. So I stopped, you know, and got my punishment for whatever it was I did. But, uh, and, and then after that, I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be mean. I'm not, I'm not going to be bad. I'm going to do what I have to do. That's what it is. In, in there are a lot of, of of photos in the in in the book. Or, or, were all of those from family albums, or did you were some of those from archives elsewhere? Or just a lot of um, rich rich history yeah. here in the story. Yes, my mother's mother, which is sort of interesting. I always thought they were sort of a poor farm family, but they apparently had enough money because even way back in the twenties. Uh, and teens, she was taking pictures, and that could not have been cheap back then, A, to have a camera, and B, to get film developed, but there was a lot of pictures of my mom and her siblings, and they're all dressed and looking really cute, and so I love those pictures, um, and I don't have as many, I have very few of my uh, father's side when he was young, but um, yeah, so a lot of those were from family, um, yes, I, I I don't know where, uh, you know, it sounded like from newspaper articles. That's true, because when I was talking about newspapers.com, I came up with a whole lot of pictures. I found so many articles I really wanted to put in the book to illustrate some of the stories, but I couldn't get permission, and I was afraid to publish anything without getting sure. official permission. So uh, I had to cut those out. But there's some stories, like my uh, dad was picked up one day. He was waiting to go downtown to work. And the guy uh, said, hey, Mario, you want to ride? And that's a sure. So he gets in the car and they're driving down the street towards downtown and uh, they're having a nice conversation. And dad says, um, hey, Ed, uh, I think you're going the wrong way on a one-way street. And he says, what? And he looks and he realizes, <laughs> oh, my God, I am going the wrong way on a one-way street. So he was so embarrassed uh, by being caught by a blind person that he told his friend who was a newspaper guy, and the newspaper guy got it out on the AP and UPI wires, and I, I got clippings from all over the country about the blind man knowing they were going the wrong way. And way. So, you know, it's stuff like that, but I just love reading. It's pretty funny. Mary, why, at this particular time, what prompted you to, to, to publish the book? Or to put the story, the book out, out now is it just was this just the culmination of the of the process, or was um, um, yeah, and you know, um, I've been working on it for so long. I just thought I got to push it and get it done. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. it, it was hanging over my head, and also because I realized uh, I'm actually turning seventy this summer, and I thought, 
no, if I don't get it done, I won't be able to enjoy it for very long. I mean, not that oh. I'm planning on dying anytime soon, but, uh, you know, I just wanted to get the word out there and I wanted my kids to know it. And now I've got grandchildren and I want them to know the story of their uh, great grandparents. And so, yeah, it, it would just seem to be the time to get it done. Yeah. For folks that pick up the book and, and read about this, your parents' lives and, and, and the impact that, 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 that they had not only on, on the community, but on, on their family, what do you hope that, that, that people take away from their story? You know, I did not sit down to write an inspirational book. If I had done that, I'd be sitting there now looking at a blank screen because I don't know how to write an inspirational book. But I can't tell you how many people have told me how inspired they were by this story and how much they loved it. And some people told me, oh, move me to tears. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty interesting. There's some sad parts near the end, but uh, wow. It's it's fun to have an impact on people and uh, continue my parents' legacy. My parents were, um, as I said, well-known, and they were very inspirational to many, many, many people. And I just wanted to be able to continue that. Um, There's people in Muncie, Indiana right now who remember them. And I went back uh, last April and and gave a few talks, and people would come up to me almost with tears in their eyes and say what my father meant to them. I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. So. You know, it's um, just a it's, it's an interesting experience to hear their stories and how they were affected by, by my parents. Uh, it makes you feel pretty good, actually. That's Mary Peroni Harper. The biography of her parents is the sound of her voice, my blind parents' story. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.